Welcome to the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill, or your host today. Uh, and our panel is going to consist of Marcus Almighty, Mark. Greetings. Lonnie. What's up? St. Louis Kiss. And Ken, wish you were here. Someone's going to have to imitate the voice of reason. And since this topic that we're going to discuss today was Lonnie's idea, you don't get to be the voice of reason. I probably won't be the voice of reason today. No. Mark, (laughs) you're our only hope. Today's episode is going to be an album discussion, a review of the 1993 Aerosmith album. Get a grip. It makes some gag. Other people quite like it. Um... Lonnie, let's start with you since this was your pick. Why on earth did you pick this album for us to discuss? Why on earth did I pick it? Because I love this album. I think it's I I know you're ready to, you're ready to mute me already, but you know and you know like most music that we enjoy, um, it goes back to you know it goes back to time you know time frame. And when the album came out, you know, why we, we talk on we talk on our other shows so much why I like um, the Kiss album Revenge. Well, it came out in 1992. You're at a very impressionable and very formidable age. This album came out in 1993. A year later, um, really made a mark on me when I was 13, 14 years old. And you know, when you're at that certain point in your life, certain things like that stick with you. And and this one is is right up there, you know, as one of my favorite albums of all time, and mainly because it came out when it did. You know, everybody likes, you know, we, when we had first mentioned this album that we were going to do it, you and Kendall said, you mean Toys in the Attic, not Get a Grip. I'm like, well, I enjoy Toys in the Attic just as much as anybody else, but this album just has a special place to me because of my impressionability when it came out, and I, I love it start to finish, and I'm going to be in the minority here, I'm sure. That may well be the case, and that's perfectly fine. The whole idea behind this podcast and this show is to talk about bands other than Kiss. So, you know, right off the bat, you've moved on from revenge for a change, and that's awesome. You know, we're making progress <laughs> here. You know, we're not, and it's Bob Ezrin doesn't come into the picture on this album, so Mark's going to be happy. And, well, obviously, we'll get into a lot of the aspects of this album. But, you know, let's start with you, Mark. You know, the first question is. You know, when did your interaction with the mighty band named Aerosmith begin? What was your entry point into the band in order to set the context of where this album appears in your lineal or linear history? Well, um, my introduction to Aerosmith again, and this is not going to be a surprise to many people who listen to this podcast or the Kiss FAQ, is my older sister. Now, Jane uh, listened to a lot of Aerosmith. Uh, she was, but she was mainly one of those people who was into the, you know, the greatest hits kind of stuff, you know, you know, Walk This Way and Sweet Emotion and all those songs were huge with her. Um, so I was aware of Aerosmith, but it's interesting what Lonnie was saying about timing being everything when an album comes out and how it impacts you. Because for me, the album that got me really hooked into Aerosmith and I was just, just loved this record and I, I went through about two or three cassette copies of it 
and then I got a CD of it, and I think I will have two of those somewhere. Is a uh, pump. Pump was the record for me that I was like, wow, this this it really can. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. The first three songs on that record are absolutely flawless, beginning to end. I mean, Young Lust, Fine. I mean, those two together even are just some of the best one-two punches on a record I've ever heard. And I loved that stuff. I mean, Steven Tyler's lyrics connected with me. At that point, I was like 18 years old, I think, when that that record came out. So I was like right in my hormonal, you know, highest state that I could be. I was playing in a band. I was, you know, sneaking booze into the house all the time. And, you know, so, you know, his lyrics really were connecting with me and all the, those sexual innuendos were like, you know, I love that record. So, and I was going to concerts. So every time Aerosmith came to Toronto, I was there, no problem. And then when this record came out, I, I, I loved it at first, but I think as time went on with this, I started noticing a little bit of it being not as solid as the rest of it but we'll get to that as we get through it right so lonnie you you kind of set the stage for you what was your first interaction with aerosmith though before you know 92 93 uh did you know who the band was you know give us your history sure you know um my introduction to aerosmith was probably the same as most people that were in my age bracket I got introduced to Aerosmith on MTV with um, Walk This Way with Run DMC and then Permanent Vacation and 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 Pump. So, you know, my, that's that's where my introduction to Aerosmith, you know, stems from is, is from, you know, sitting around watching videos on MTV like we all did um, back in the day. So I was a fan of the band. My brother had Pump. My brother had um, permanent vacation, you know, just like we've talked about before on the show. Well, your sibling buys an album, what do you do? You get a blank tape and you dub it. You know, that's what we all did. So, you know, I, I was very familiar with Aerosmith prior to the record coming out. And I think we had, I think we, between me and my brother, I think we had Toys in the Attic, you know, before that came out. And I think we probably had a greatest hits between one, between one of us before it came out as well. So we, you know, we, we were fairly into the band prior to this record coming out. See, this is why I, I wish Ken had been able to make it today. And, and yeah, it's Ken's, Ken would, it, Ken's going to love toys in the end. Yeah. And, and no, it was more his story because he's someone who's got a experience with these bands in real time, going back into the seventies and the heyday of so many of these, I would have loved to have heard his story and we'll do another Aerosmith al- album for sure, you know, down the road that we'll make sure that he's on, on the show for. Um, so I, I guess I have more of the history with the band because I was getting into them before kiss, which is really strange. Mm-hmm. There was a period in, the early mid eighties where my, my friends had elder siblings who'd gone off to university and left their albums. And when the back in the saddle tour happened and they suddenly started appearing in circus and uh, hit parader and all the rock magazines at the time, the Kerrangs that were imported, it was something that everyone was following. And I just kind of got roped into Checking it out as these kids would bring out a copy of Rocks 
that had been sitting in their brother's room while it got off to SUNY because we were living in upstate New York at the time. So by the time Dunwood Mirrors came out, I was well primed. I'd gone back through the catalog at that point. I think I'd heard everything other than Rockin' a Hard Place. I, and I already had a favorite Aerosmith album at that point, Toys in the Attic at that age, was my Aerosmith album. And I, I was totally familiar with it when, you know, Let the Music Do the Talking was a video on MTV and everyone was crowding to see it. I was in like Flynn. And, you know, that's a history that I don't have with Kiss at all because of my entry point, which makes my relationship with Aerosmith, you know, a little bit deeper that I'd had that experience during their reunion tour uh, of the excitement that actually existed for so many fans. Though, obviously not a fan during the original era, which uh, I guess maybe only Ken would be able to describe. And that's just supposing that that is his story with Aerosmith. Um, so, which was your first Aerosmith album that you ever owned or experienced? And Lonnie, your topic, you go. So, I guess, you know, I mentioned that my brother had Pump and he, and he had Permanent Vacation. I think the first album I personally owned was this record. Um, and again, maybe that's why I I like it so much. It's probably, it, I think it is the first, I mean, you know, he had Pump and he had Permanent Vacation. But I think this is the first one I, I specifically had on my own, had a real copy of it. Um, and that's that maybe why I like it so much to this day still. But going back, to, going back to Pump, I, I, we we listened to Pump a lot, and MTV played the hell out of Love in the Elevator, played the hell out of Take Me to the Other Side, um, Janie's Got a Gun, Tell Me What It Takes to Let You Go, things like that. But especially those first three, they really played the hell out of those first three, and that that was really um when we were really really getting into aerosmith and and really kind of discovering their past too at the same time so it the, depending on how you look at it it's either pump or this record depending on how you look at it so it's in that in that late 80s early 90s time frame yeah and uh, here, here's a remote thing from ken um toys in the attic was my first aerosmith album and is the watermark for me you really can't go wrong with that. What did I just say about Toys in the Attic, even though my opinion has changed? Mark, your first Aerosmith album. Um, the funny thing is that the first Aerosmith album I had ever gotten was given to me by my sister for my birthday. And she had gotten for me Toys in the Attic. She said, you know, if you're going to like this band, then you should listen to this. And I, I, I had gotten it and, you know. It was one of those listens where I was like, oh, I remember this song and I remember this song. And, you know, it was one of those listens where I, I I enjoyed it because I was familiar with some of the songs, but it never really like, you know, hook, line and sinkered me at that time, you know. But the first album that I physically bought of my own for Aerosmith was Pump. And that to me was like, I was like, oh, like when I bought it, I was like so happy. It was like, and that, I, I can't explain it. That album made me so happy. I had my first car already, like at 16, my mom gave me her other car because she had just bought a new car. So I had my first car, a 1981 blue Ford Escort and I had a shitty cassette Ball player so in there. Hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I put it, I put, I remember putting it in there and the cassette player was so shit that once I put the tape in, it got stuck and it couldn't come out. The eject didn't work. 
right? So I was like, I didn't care because I love that album. And you were able to flip sides by pushing the button on the on the side of it there. So you were able to listen to the whole album. So thank God, right? Otherwise, it would have been the same thing all the time, you know, or whatever. Right? So I mean, I I overdosed on that record pretty much. Yeah, you know, 83 to about 88 is a little bit of a blank for me, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I think my first album was Toys in the Attic, and it probably would have been because of we had a, a friend, Jason, whose brother also had, a, you know, I think it was the late 50s, Les Paul, Black, and we just nice. play, play the hell out of the Walk This Way riff. And if I, I analyze myself, uh, it was probably because of the coolest album cover. I can just imagine myself back at that age going through the record shop, flipping through the records. <laughs> Toys just jumps out. Night in the Ruts as well would have jumped out. But Toys, more than likely because of Walk This Way, would have been my first album. Um, let's get this out of the way. What is your favorite Aerosmith album? One pick. There are no ties. What is the one album? Lonnie. It's this record. It's it's get a grip. There it's is my favorite. There is no wrong answer. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm I'm gonna stay true to myself. It's get a grip. One hundred percent. That's perfectly fine. We love you. Um <laughs> Mark, how about you? Your favorite Aerosmith album. Um yeah, I think I'm gonna have to be like with Lonnie and go with the record that we've been both kind of hyping. And that is pump pump is my favorite album. Hands down. Wow. <laughs> Ken, I need you. <laughs> uh, obviously Ken's is toys in the attic. Mine actually is rocks. And that, that is the album I go to when I'm not listening to get your wings. Cause I don't really have one. I, I've just broken my own rule. But uh, I listen to rocks more than anything, except when I'm listening to Get Your Wings. Again, for, for the entry point that I had, I remember a permanent vacation coming out. I was coming back from Singapore, and I seem to vaguely, very vaguely, remember picking up a cassette copy in the airport and being able to listen to that on my Walkman. You know, at the time, I thought it was really good, but um, it, didn't, it didn't last for me. It, it was like, okay, once Dude Looked Like a Lady had been on about 8 billion times, I hated that album with a passion. Pump came out, I was like, Love in an Elevator is basically Dude Looks Like a Lady. It's going to get played to death. It was played to death. I got so sick of most of it until I bought a Japanese version and it actually had a good extra song on it. Um, but rocks. You know, I'm, I'm actually proud of that because it... it, it damn fine album all right let's move on um so i guess prior to this both of you had listened to get a grip so you know for myself i'd listened to it too many times i was living in uh, england at the time uh, that it came out in what was it, april 1993 i'd gone back to university so i was living in buckingham and that was when you could actually go into the pharmacist boots or and uh, the news agent wh smith and buy albums and cd singles so my first interaction with this album was, and I still have it. It's one of the very few things I have left, the Living on the Edge CD mm-hmm. single, which mm. it, it made me really thrilled that I still have this one thing from my, my past when so much has been thrown out. Um, what were your first impressions when Get a Grip came out? Lonnie, your topic, you go. I remember 
hearing Living on the Edge for the first time in the spring of 93 before the album came out. I was actually, I was in the car with my older, with my eldest brother, who I don't talk about on this show, I don't talk about as much as, but we, we were coming back, I had just gotten confirmed, and he was my sponsor, and we were driving back to my mom and dad's house, um, for a confirmation party, you know, bar mitzvah mm-hmm. type, whatever, and Living on the Edge was on the radio on the way home, and I remember listening to it, like, oh, it's new Aerosmith, you know, that's cool, you know, in eight, you know, in eighth grade, you know, very impressionable, you know, it's, well, it's a little different than than Pump, than the stuff that we're we're hearing on Pump, because they, you know, Living on the Edge is a little different, but I but I enjoyed it, you know, and I was, you know, looking forward to the album coming out, you know. One of the one of the first albums, you know, like I bought, like, you know, I, not my, I guess I've been buying albums for a couple of years at that point on Tuesdays when they came out. But I remember going and buying it that Tuesday when it came out, like being looking forward to it and buying it. So, you know, Living on the Edge was different, but it was, but I still thought it was cool. But when I bought the album and I hit play with the intro that goes into eat the rich that goes into get a grip. I was hooked and I thought it was, I thought it was great. And you guys are probably going to, you know, give me some weird looks the rest of the show as we talk about it. But, um, I, I really, I, it really, it really hooked me with the way that intro was. And it kind of had that, the walk this way, little riff in the beginning of the intro and just kind of like a, a callback to their past. And then, you know, Right in the Eat the Rich was a good, you know, and straight in the Get a Grip. I, I, I enjoyed it from the very beginning. Yeah. Mark, what about you? You know, your first impressions of it. Um, well, when I first heard it, um, I was really anticipating it, mainly because, you know, of how I was with Pump. I was like, okay, great. So they're on a roll now. Every time I saw them in concert, they were phenomenal, really good live. So I was like, okay, great. New material, it's going to be good. Like Lonnie, I heard Living on the Edge on the radio, Q107, in my car. And at first, I was a little like, mm, I, I wasn't too, I, I found it was a little laid back. I thought I was hoping for another, like, out of the gates, like, you know, Love in an Elevator, where it was kind of like, you know, really upbeat and stuff like that. And I found this a little, you know, in kind of like third gear instead of in fifth, you know. So, I was like, okay, you know, I'm not going to give up on it. You know, they, there's, from what I had heard, there's going to be a lot of songs in this record, right? So I was like, okay, so it's just, that's just one. There's going to be other great songs in here. So I got the record, and just like Lonnie, when the introduction started, I was like, okay, here we go. And then Eat the Rich came on, and I was like, this is great. Eat the Rich was really good. I was like, wow, I, I, I'm loving it. But then, Unlike Lonnie, when they got to get a grip, I was like, Ooh, okay. Like the thing that started bothering me about that song was I hated when guitar players use that pitch shift pedal and Joe Perry was all over that thing in that song. I was like, oh no, why are you using that? You're supposed to be like a, you know, 70s blues player. Why are you using this stuff? Like, no, don't use this. And there was just like, I was finding like there was a song that was really good. Then I got to get, the, get I went to get a grip and I was like, nah. then I got the fever and I was like, okay, now we're back in business because fever is awesome. What a like fantastic song that is. But then again, then we, you know, 
I just found that with this record, unlike Pump, and I mean, you know, Lonnie, I mean, you can disagree. I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, mind at all. That I just find that with this record, unlike Pump, it would be a good, not so good, good, not so good. Did you? I don't know if you found it that way, but like Flesh, for example, I just couldn't stand that introduction, that whole one minute of that thing in the background, <laughs> and then she took it you know it's like come on like what is this was it like it took forever for it to get to the actual song it's just that's a little creepy i will agree with you on that <laughs> yeah you know and then i thought walk on down was okay like i wasn't expecting joe perry to sing on a record right but i thought that was okay but then shut up on dance is fantastic i i, I love that song you know so i don't know for me what what was different than pump is i found that this was very like really good pretty good really good eh really like it was like an up and down for me yeah i think for me i mean i I mentioned the kind of the cd single which obviously it was the cover again that drew me to it which because i i wasn't buying many rock magazines i was at university so i bought the cd single and it's got living on the edge which is a fantastic song that would probably i don't actually i don't know if it would but it would probably make a top 20 aerosmith list for me um don't know about top 10 which is the challenge but it also had flesh and it had don't stop on it which for me always formed kind of the best of you know this era there is no comparing it to pump pump was a completely different beast especially for me who hadn't been a big fan particularly a permanent vacation when they came back with black leather you know just like Motley Crue had done with Dr. Feelgood, Kiss with Revenge. They toughened up their image. Uh, they were just playing guitar. Um, I had a very positive overview of, you know, Pump. This album was a follow-on from that. And overall, at the time, it was, you know, I thought it was decent enough. You know, we'll talk about some of the songs that Mark did as well, because I, I share those opinions on, on what he said. But what I find is I liked it far more in 1993 than I do in 2020. And yeah. that, that simply is because I have moved backwards um, with Aerosmith, and I, I just don't really listen to anything past 1985 from the, these days, so it was a real kind of, kind of challenge. So in terms of its sound, um, Mark, as a producer, what do you think about its sound? And do you recall what you thought about it then versus now? Because one of the comments Ken made was that the drums sound, and I, I guess hey, the drums sound horrible, and the production is horrible. And you just mentioned one of the elements of the production, which was, of course, how long it takes them to get into a song with all the unnecessary tubular bells, which is kind of funny coming from Joe Perry. Wasn't it him who once said, don't bore us, get to the chorus? Well, don't bore us, get to the freaking song, right? Your thoughts on the sound? Well, I mean, the sound, the sound of the record to me overall, I mean, I, I kind of like the sound, the sound of the record. I mean, you know, you have Bruce Fairburn producing. You had Brendan O'Brien mixing, who's like one of the top mixing guys at that time. And even still now is looked at as one of the, you know, top mixing guys in the business. And then you had, you know, Greg Fuliganti, who did the mastering at MasterDisc. And one of the things that I remember to this day when I bought the CD, okay, when I bought the CD, I took a look at it. And I was like, all right, you know. And I looked in the back and I saw something that really shocked me at first as a person who was getting into music production at that time. And I was like, why does it say AAA on the back? Oh, yeah, yeah. The AAA was a big <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. And it was I was the like, the only album that was AAA. Yeah. I was like, why is it? 
that these guys went a a a because because before there was a huge thing going around in the music industry about you know digital 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 <clears throat> and i remember like painkiller had come out in 91 or around that time or and they had a it was all digital and it sounded incredible you know and there was a lot of records that were coming out that were completely digitally recorded dire straits and a bunch of other bands and this was like kind of going back in time and a lot of i remember a lot of engineer guys where i was doing my co-op were saying the same thing They're like oh my god why would you go back to tape when we finally tackled digital you know what i mean it's just like stepping backwards you know going on, recording on tape mastering onto tape you know and like you know like doing the final cut via analog you know instead of digital and you know and i put a note here on my little piece of paper saying that he goes who would have known that aerosmith would have known what the future would hold that analog recordings are what people would want to go back and listen to you know 20 years later or 30 years later people wanted to hear this and you know and now they i think it's almost like they had the last laugh because now they have something in their catalog that's all analog you know that's from that time period. Nobody really can say that, that they had a completely analog recording matter because everybody was doing digital. So I, I thought that was a very interesting thing. And what I found even more interesting about that was the fact that the drums on here are a sound that I don't really like. I agree with Ken. I don't like the drums too much, the sound on this, but it's not the whole kit. It's the snare drum that I don't really like so much on this record. I don't know. There's something about it that it sounds like it's very... Like like there's a sample going on with the real snare. And I kind of hate it when they do that, when they mix samples with real drum sounds. But you know, that's that's to me kind of minor. I think overall it sounds great. The guitars are awesome. The bass guitar sounds fantastic on this record. I mean, Steven <clears throat> Steven uh Steven Tyler's vocals are really good. He's listening on headphones, they compress them really nicely. It's his vocals have never sounded better on a record, in my opinion, especially at this time period. So I think the production of it is top shelf. I think where I have the issues is more with the production of the arrangement and the song structures. Like you said, I hate that whole one minute, you know, waiting for the song to start. You know, they have a lot of these little introduction things, and they had the thing at the end. You know, that whole boogeyman thing, and the you know the light at the end of the tunnel could be you. You know, good night, and all those kind of little things at the end. I mean. I don't mind some of them, but there's a lot of them on here, you know, and, you know, for like, yeah. And like you said, for somebody who's a, you know, get to the chorus kind of people, they weren't really following that rule on this record, but I think that's kind of minor. I mean, if the record sounded terrible on top of that, then then it would have been a double thumbs down for me. Yeah. But too many songs where you're actually waiting for an elevator. Which, wow, yeah. wow. <laughs> no, no. I think Ken and you both touch on the big, the thing that bothers me the most about this album. I think the mix is wonderful. the The balance of all the elements is great. There are too many elements. That's a different matter. Um, that's all a matter of taste, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the drum, the, the reverb is cut off mm-hmm. in, in so many parts of the drumming, and maybe that's because I prefer '80s production with that gated you know, drum yeah. sound, you, you really get to have the, uh, particularly the snare ring. It's mm-hmm. not, it, there is no, the wavelength is just gone. There is no kind of line on it. Whole tail. Yeah. There's my arm was just out of camera. Uh, while I tried to do a little wave. Um, 
So that bothers me tremendously on on this, and it makes it sound so dated now. Whereas you've you've said the things that I, I would say. Steven Tyler's vocals are fantastic, um, but even Bruce Fairburn and Brendan couldn't make Joe Perry sound good. It's just mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, Joe. <laughs> stay away. Never ever figured out to stay away from the mic, which really bothers me, because otherwise I think the songs are, are good. But production wise, the sound. Um, and, and this goes into the next question about the production and Lonnie, you'll get to, to talk about both in one go, you know, there's too much fluff on the album, these long intros. When I first listened to it and you had that stupid rap intro, I was like, you already did run DMC. It's like, come on, something new, something fresh, not, you know that crap before getting into the songs and the long intros and then oh you've got boogeyman well you had the movie three albums ago i mean because that was done with mirrors it just didn't end up on the album so all those things bothered me lonnie what about you the sound and its production the sound and the production are very in my opinion are very typical of what was going on in that time period time period and, I, and Ken alluded to that too in, in the notes that he submitted that it 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 sounds very competitive with, with what was going on um, musically and what, and what a lot of the, and what a lot of big bands were doing bon and I, what's that Bon Jovi yeah. and, and I had heard and the, the expectations and the wait for this album um, was longer than anticipated and I had heard things that that they had listened to, like they were in the process of recording and writing this album, and like they had heard like Use Your Illusion came came out come out in the fall of '91, and they're like, hey, we need to kind of revamp what we're doing to be competitive with what's going to be popular by the time this album comes out. I don't, I don't know if you guys had heard that or not. I remember, I remember hearing that back when the album came out, that that's one of the reasons why it was delayed is that they kind of revamped what they were doing to try to stay competitive um, with what was popular in the day. So, and having Bruce Ferdinand as the producer, you know, is very trendy at the time in spring of 93 when this, when this came out to try to be, cutting edge for for that time period um julian you mentioned a, a lot of fluff on the album yeah boogeyman you know I, I i don't need the 14th song on 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 the album i i don't i i don't see the point in that even being on there i mean and as much as i like the album i don't see the point of that being on there you know you can end it with amazing delight at the end of the tunnel maybe you good night i don't see why you need to go into boogeyman after that it, it kind of like what we've said on on our other show about hot in the shade just because you can fit more stuff on the album doesn't mean you shouldn't necessarily have more stuff on the album and to me that's what boogeyman is well we have a couple more minutes we can squeeze on here we might as well just throw this on there because just because we can't well just because you can doesn't mean you should Mm um and yeah and you've mentioned like you know well flesh it takes you forever to get in to get into what the song is you get the the creepy intro actually put her hand on mine which is like you know kind of reminds me of like a like a jeffrey dahmer thing or, or something like that or, or like uh silent or like silence of the lambs almost or something you know what i mean <laughs> so it's very creepy but it it doesn't take a and and, and you mentioned too there, there there's a lot 
we and and there's a lot of you know ballads and you know between crazy and crying and and amazing and you know the the trilogy of of songs with um alicia silverstone in the videos which you know julian julian made a face when i said alicia silverstone (laughs) but but that but that but 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 she became the face but as this album as they continued to tour and promote this album she became the face of that album she really Mm -hmm. did i mean everybody could relate to those three videos everybody knew and talked about those three videos just as much as they talked about the album, maybe more so than they talked about the album itself as time went on. Um, but as far as production goes, you know, it's it's very trendy with 1993. Sounds a lot like um, Bon Jovi's um, Keep the Keep Faith the and, faith. and yeah. Bon Jovi's um, These Days, which came out a couple of years later then, too. It's very, very in line with that kind of what was what was popular at the time. So. Yeah, th- I don't have a problem. Thanks I- for mentioning Alicia or whatever her name was. Alicia, Alicia Silverstone. The that was, I mean, even back then, I'm like, these guys have gone from being the cat cuffing up the hairball to being the cat chasing the laser pointer, trying to be popular, <laughs> trying to be trendy, trying to hop on every bandwagon oh, yeah. possible in order to stay relevant in an MTV generation with an attention span of a goldfish. You know, they went from being a tough and tumble rock and roll band, and you know, Pump was the last gasp of that for me. You know, into being this thing that needed to put that sort of thing in a video, and it. it from there, it's boom, straight down for Aerosmith for me. But, you know, opinions vary. Yeah, I mean, and it's not that I don't appreciate her. It's certainly yeah. not that I don't appreciate her. It was well, just that it was too contrived. Well, they had such great. Well, crying was a hit. Crying was a hit. And the video, and the video was, was an even bigger hit. <laughs> and they saw what they had with her and crying. <laughs> so, you know what? We're going to, we're going to do, we're going to make amazing a video and we're going to make. We're going to make crazy video and we're going to put her back in it. And we're just going to pump this thing for, for lack of better terms, for all it's worth. All right. That's fair enough. So that takes us nicely into the singles. You know, this was when bands were all trying to be like Def Leppard or Michael Jackson and have seven hit singles from each album, which explains why they were jamming, you know, 70 minutes worth of music onto an album that they really didn't need to have 70 minutes of and Lonnie you spoke about it Boogeyman why would they keep Boogeyman that's just fluff that would have been a b-side but yet you have Don't Stop you don't you have uh, Can't Stop Messing as you know Can't Stop Messing was on the British version of the album and that's better than Boogeyman it just you know stuff doesn't need to be there so when you start finding on these singles that the b-sides are better than material on the album that was when I really started questioning it. So let's talk about the singles. Because you had Living on the Edge, followed by Eat the Rich, followed by Crying, followed by Amazing, followed by Line Up, and in the UK then followed by Shut Up and Dance, and then the final single from the album, Crazy. Mark, singles, is that too many? What are your thoughts on those picks? And is there any other song on this album that you think should have been a single? <laughs> um, I think it's way too many singles. I mean, I understand why they did it, because they were selling. I mean, this record did, what, 7 million copies in the United States? It was a diamond record in Canada. I mean, they'd be stupid to not put out singles, because it was selling, you know? But um, Living on the Edge, uh, fine single. 
The video was interesting, I thought, as well. So, you know, good start. Eat the Rich, fantastic. I love that song. So to me, that was, you know, a no-brainer, I thought. I thought that should have even maybe been the first single, even. I thought that was a great song. Uh, Crying, I don't like that song. It really, I find it just really cookie-cutter as far as ballads go. Uh, and and kind of disappointing considering how bluesy and great Aerosmith were back in the day that this was sort of just like, you know, it's like Jim Valens came in. Hello, guys. Can I write a song with you? Like, it just totally seems like he was one of these guys that just came in and just took Steven Tyler aside and said, listen, we're going to make a hit single, you and I, you know, let's get together here. And it it's just, they could have done so much better. In, in retrospect, I think Amazing is a much better single i think i like that it was a much better song i mean i think the piano work is really good on it i love the the string arrangement in that especially the low the nice cellos at the top with it are really good i i think that that's what made that ballad much more outstanding than crying to be honest with you and uh lineup lineup i think was just you know they needed to put out another rock song because they're going to start getting pegged as a ballad band if they put another ballad out because that would have been three in a row if they would have put that out, right? So, and you know, lineup is not bad. It's a straight ahead rock song, and you know, you have you know Lenny Kravitz on it too. So, and he was hip at the time and cool. So, good idea, right? Uh, Shut up and dance. I love this song, but it was a UK single, so I never got to we never got to hear that here on the radio too much. And then ending with crazy. That to me is just like, you know. That to me is just like another cookie cutter blues song, like, and not even a good blues song in my opinion. But you know, it. I think they could have easily have stopped after "Amazing." That's what I think. Except they had another leg of the tour to sell, right? Yeah. Except they were torn like crazy. Yeah, exactly. They were. They were road dogs for this. You know, they'd Mm -hmm. been so for Pump. They'd been so for Permanent Vacation. They were working hard on the road without a doubt. They were doing probably too much. That was, you know, healthy for them. But maybe Tim thought keeping them out on the road and keeping them occupied would keep them clean. Together. Mm. Clean, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there were, you know, they, they toured the like crazy for this album you know and then and then they well they released big ones right after that you know and they and they toured for that too after they released that greatest hits album for which is basically just the singles off of permanent vacation pump in this record but and a couple of new songs but they they toured for that too i mean they toured and toured and toured when this album came out um is it you know Living on the Edge, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, is an, was an interesting um, lead-off single. There's not another song on the album that sounds like Living on the Edge. Yeah. Living on the Edge almost stands by itself. It kind of reminds me of God Gave Rock and Roll to You off of Revenge, where that song just kind of stands by itself off Revenge. Mm-hmm. And this song kind of does the same thing, kind of stands by itself on Get a Grip, where it, it sounds a little different than every other song on the album, but it's a good song. Mm-hmm. But it just sounds misplaced on the album, almost, yeah. in my opinion. But it, but it's a but it's a good song. It is, and it's a good lead off single. It was different, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, but it's a good song. And Eat the Rich, I remember I, I worked at a golf course when I was in high school, and we always had the rock station on, 
in, in the back room, we would always like clean these rich people's golf clubs after they played golf. And one of my best friends, he's still one of my best friends to this day, Bobby Jones, we're, um, we're cleaning, we're cleaning, you know, these rich people's golf clubs and we have the rack station on and they're playing eat the rich. And he always thought eat the rich was beat the bitch. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> just terrible but he's always like beat the bitch like, no it's not it so, anyway it's not, it's, it's not anvil dude <laughs> I, had, I had to throw that story in there because it's so great <laughs> but um is it, it it's almost to the you know there's really when you get down to it if you take away boogeyman you take away in the intro there's 12 songs on the record and there's more singles on the record than non-singles on the record, which is a little goofy, but it was selling. So what do you do with an album that keeps selling? You keep you keep pumping it out there. You keep shoving it out there so you can sell some more records. And when you have a hit video with Alicia Silverstone, what do, you, what, do you, what do you do? You release another video with Alicia Silverstone. And then you release a third one with Alicia Silverstone because it's working. So, and there she is. So, is it too many singles? Yeah, I was really surprised. Even as much as I like this album, I was really surprised when they put Crazy out there as a single because I really kind of thought Crazy was, it's not one of my favorite songs on the album. I considered it more of a throwaway song on the album. And the one that released the single in the video for Crazy, I'm like, even, even as much as I like this record, I was like, really, we're doing a we're doing a a single and a video for that now too. So I thought I thought it was a little too much, and you you kind of have to know when to say when on singles, just as like like you have to know when to say when on just because we can fit so many minutes on an album doesn't mean we should cram all those songs on the album. Exactly, but I think part of the problem with that was when uh, Kladner originally heard what they'd recorded, he sent them back into the studio to record more radio hits, and Crazy was one of them, apparently. And that that may or may not be true, but I, you know, when you send a band back in to do more, you're just gonna put it on the album or use it as the B-side. I think you know that first single was fantastic, "Living on the Edge." Again, I've already mentioned that the B-side on that was better than some of the album on the album. That was, of course, Don't Stop. Um, the next single that came out was Eat the Rich for me in the UK. And again, that had a B-side. Head first. I'm sorry, that's better than some of the songs on the album. And it's just the story of the singles had B-sides that were better. Blind Man was released as a B-side. Um, Deuces Are Wild, which is, I think, on Beavis and Butthead. I was getting that kind of mixed up. was a B-side. You know, so these B-sides are absolutely fantastic versus some of the, the utter dross that's on the album. When you think of Get a Grip as a song, I'm sorry, that's crap. Never did a thing for me. Eat the Rich as a song never did a thing for me. You know, we're three songs into the album before Fever hits and we get the first sign of life for me. Um, so B-sides better than album tracks bugs the living daylights out of me. And, you know, I'll use the same argument when talking about Def Leppard and Bon Jovi in some cases. Um, but I think the biggest problem with this album and the singles is... Nirvana, do you remember they had a uh, bonus track or a hidden track on, I think it was Incesticide or In Utero, 
uh, radio-friendly unit shifter? Well, no. Aerosmith had the MTV-friendly contrived bullshit shifters. And it was all the stuff that kind of Mark's been playing with Alicia. It, it's just crap. It's just, you know, they had totally sold their souls. They had become slaves to MTV playlists. Worse than Kiss ever managed to be, even with Forever, and that manufactured hit. And that bothered me tremendously. So you get through these singles crying, okay, I get it why it was issued. Amazing. Fantastic. That, for me, is the best of the ballads on the album, the you know, mm-hmm. kind of the softer songs. And then you get into other stuff. Well, I get why, you know, Line Up would have been a single with Kravitz and the tie-in from his hype at the time. Uh, Shut Up and Dance, again, Damn Yankees. That was co-written by, I think, Sean Blades. So that makes sense. Crazy. It's just like, enough. This is not bad. Michael Jackson bad quality. This is not thriller quality. This is not hysteria. It was just pushing the envelope a little bit too far for my tastes. Um, What songs stood out for you immediately? Pick your top three from the album, Lonnie. From the... Immediately when I bought the album and, you know, listened to it straight through, Amazing really stuck out to me. Um, you guys have you guys have both mentioned Amazing. And I will definitely agree with you that it is the best of the, those three ballads that they released. Um, it's it it's it's a really good song. It, it really speaks to you. Um, it's maybe you can kind of listen to it and then the times we're in now and it might it might ring different to you even now the light at the end of the tunnels type stuff you know it's it, I, I think it really stands the test of time that song does um live, I, I, i'll go back to living on the edge i it was different as a as a lead single and it, it sounds different than the rest of the album but it's a great song it really a good song is a good song doesn't matter what album it's on or, or you know a good song is a good song you can't get around it and i'll go back to fever fever is great and it's fun and you know garth brooks did it because and really turned it into a made it a, a hit for him and made it a hit for a different genre even too because again a good song is a good song you can you can re you can just take a good song and recycle it and it's you can make it your own but you can't take away the fact that it's a good song. So those three songs really stick out for me. As much as I love other stuff on them, I really like Crying. I mean, I don't. I'm, I mentioned earlier I'm not a big fan of Crazy, but 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 I thought Crying was really good, and I I really and but but Julian asked me to pick three, so I'm not gonna name out multiple songs. So I'm gonna stick with Amazing, <laughs> Living on the Edge, and Fever. Don't make me speak German, Lonnie. Don't make me speak German. <laughs> Uh, you know, let's let Ken into this conversation here. Um, I said pick three, and he said five songs that I like. Uh, Eat the Rich, Fever, Living on the Edge, Crying, Line Up. So we get some crossover there with, uh, you know, Ken's taste and Lonnie's, and probably we'll find out with Mark and myself. Um, and his other comment on that is, of course, that the other ballads are a reach. Yeah, agreed. Mark, what are your three top picks from Get a Grip? Well, the the top three songs on here have been the same now as they were back when I first got the record. And they'll always be my top three. Fever is my favorite song off this record. I always thought it was really good. I thought it was a standout song. 
you know, good pacing, you know, everything about it was just, it, it, it's one of those songs that if you're a little slow out of bed in the morning and you get a cup of coffee and you want this on, it'll get you going a bit quicker. Yeah. And uh, Eat the Rich, I've always liked that song for some reason. I think more lyrically, I found it interesting because, it, you know, it's it's very, the lyrics are supposed to be humorous, but it's also very uh pinpoints a certain time and like the year you know with the whole reference to gray poupon and stuff mm-hmm. like that which is something that you don't you know unless you were in watching commercials back then probably now if you heard this the first time you'll probably think what the hell is gray poupon you know what, I mean? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything <laughs> yeah exactly so it's very dated those lyrics but i mean that's why i probably love them and so why lonnie loves them because we right. remember that time right so it's very humorous that way and another thing the third one has an exact similar tie to it. I love Shut Up and Dance. The And the one thing that really made me love that song even more was I remember going to the movie theater to see Wayne's World and they played that. Aerosmith played it in the movie. And I was like, just hearing it on the big speakers in the, in the theater, then I was like, yeah, it just reignited my love of that song and how much I love that song. You know, you see that part where they're bopping around with Garth and the girl, the, the identical looking girl with the big licorice there and they're just bopping to the song. I mean, what a great song it is. I, and I mean, when they played it in the movie, I thought that, you know, it, it just suited that part of the movie so perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> so Wayne's World. Come on, man. Can't, can't go wrong <laughs> with those. Nice picks, by the way, Mark, I must say. Um, yeah, mine, Living on the Edge by a Mile first encounter with the album you know the most positive memory of it and being excited from it amazing obviously the best of the ballads for for my taste and um oddly line up Mm. i just really like the vibe of that song and maybe it was you know lenny kravitz playing a part in that i didn't really read the liner notes at the time i just liked the the swing of it so was it line up and ace ventura uh, I think it might have been, yeah. I think it was. Like, he's, I can remember him running down the track trying to find, you know, yeah, trying to find the that AFC Championship ring, and I think "Line Up" was like the <laughs> montage song in the background. East nope. Ventura. Never seen it, so no idea. Come on, Julian. What? <laughs> never seen East Ventura. That movie is like That's your gold. Quarantine assignment this weekend. It's oh man. I, I really don't know if I'm brave enough for that. Um, were there any songs? on this album that you strongly disliked and i mean i'm i'm gonna Mm -hmm. go first since i've already mentioned one and it really is walk on down which is another example of joe proving why he should be kept away from the microphone um on there you know cry and makes me want to puke and crazy (laughs) is ultra contrived angel part three are my notes on those mark we're gonna ping pong straight back to you um, yeah, I, I think that the ones that are, the ones I really dislike are, are similar. Um, I don't like Flesh. I know I mentioned that earlier, uh, with the whole long introduction, stuff like that. But I also, I don't know, something about that whole verse that just, I didn't like so much that the day goes on. Da, 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 da. And he has that really low voice underneath it, doubling it. It's just kind of like, I don't know, it just doesn't really do anything for me but hey that's just me uh get a grip i'm not i've never been too big on get a grip the song uh again i i just found that 
what I didn't like about it was that it was very one pace. It just goes through the whole thing kind of in one little straight line. And just because I used to listen to stuff on headphones all the time, that pitch guitar just drove me nuts. It always was coming in my ear. I was like, God, stop that, Joe. You know, Because I know that he was big on the advertisements because I used to collect all these guitar magazines and they would always had, you know, Joe Perry plays the Digitech whammy pedal, you know, and it was very apparent that he played it in quite a bit on that <laughs> song. So I didn't, I didn't, uh, didn't dig that too much. And I, and I didn't like walk on down either. I think musically it was really good. I think it's one of the songs where uh, Tom Hamilton's bass is really good in that song. But again, you know, if they would have gave it to Steven to sing, I think it might have, would have been a really good song, actually. Shit, if they gave it to Tom to sing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so those are those are the three that I didn't, that I strongly disliked. All right, Lonnie, unleash the hate. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I I am in agreement with you on Walk On Down that I don't need I don't need that right in the slapped right in the middle of the album. I. Joe Perry, I have a lot of respect for Joe Perry as an artist and as a guitar player, but it doesn't do it for me right in the middle of the album. And the only other song on there that I really don't care for, and I've mentioned it already, is Boogeyman. I I, I don't see the need for it. I I, I skip it every time. I I think Amazing is a fantastic way to to end the album that I don't need this little instrumental after that that it's just it's just pointless it's like it, it almost makes me think that they the way amazing ends makes you feel like they always intended the album to end with amazing yeah and then they're like hey we could cram on about two and a half minutes and joe's and they're like oh hey we have this little instrumental let's just throw that in there so we can squeeze as much on there as we can there's it's it, it always, or mechanical it, royalties. No, right. I, it's, no, I, I think it's the other way around, Lottie. I think Boogeyman was supposed to start the album. Really, really. And and Stephen came in later saying, "Yeah, I got this really cool rap, man. You know." And uh, okay, Stephen, we'll shift that to the end. <laughs> interesting. I I never thought of it that way, but that's that's an interesting thought process. Maybe Boogeyman was supposed to was supposed to be the intro. Maybe they wanted an intro. And it was Steven, to Steven versus Joe, as always, you know. The, Who's gonna win? Steven. Absolutely. So for me, for me, is Boogeyman and 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 Walk On Down because I really, I really, enjoy, I really enjoy every other song on the album. Do I think Crazy should have been a single? No, but I still think it's a it's a good enough and, and a good song. So yeah. if I, if I have two songs, I would get rid of it. So those two. But I'm with Julian. There's messing messing around and don't stop her. Are songs that really? It's a crime that they're not there. on. It's a crime they're not on the album as opposed to those two. It's a crime that there's not a deluxe edition of this album yet, and we'll talk For a little sure. bit about that. A couple questions down the road as we wrap this up. Um, best ballad. Were there too many attempts to, uh, at superficial MTV hit fodder? And obviously, I've talked about amazing. 
Um, but I had kind of also figured out, even by that point, that Aerosmith had totally sold out. and that, But they were trying too hard to be trendy, which I've also mentioned, you know, throughout this episode with these videos and the current stars, the, you know, the, the, the crossover, the tie-ins. It was just, to, to me, they had done that in 86, and that was really their launching pad back into relevancy. But they were just so frightened about becoming irrelevant again that they would always look for ways to overdo it. And it just, to me, seemed utterly contrived. Lonnie, I'll go straight back to you on Best Ballad and uh, those thoughts. Best Ballad, and, and I've mentioned this already, Best Ballad is amazing. I, I think it's a great song from start to finish. As much as I like crying, amazing is the song, if you're going to make me pick, of the three of them. Um you know, I, I will agree with you that they they really, to me, they really became, and not that there was anything wrong with it at the time, because it, because it was everything, but they really became an MTV band. But people today, for pe- people like maybe people that are younger that listen to this show may not understand or realize MTV was the driving force of everything back in the day. Even radio. more so, even more so than your rock radio stations. MTV was the driving force that pushed everything. If you weren't on MTV, you weren't anything. You had to be on MTV. You had to have a hit. If you were going to be a hit band, you had to have a hit video. So what did they do? They found a formula that worked and they pushed it three times to stay on MTV. Whether you think, you know, all three of those should have been singles or not. That's what the formula was at the time, and that's what they profited off of. So, best ballad, amazing. Am I a fan of, of crazy? No, but that, but that's, but that's what, but that, that's what was going on at the time. It's just, a, it's a product, it's a product of its time. No, uh, understood. I mean, Ken mentioned uh, crying as the one ballad, really saying that the other two were pushing it. Um, so that was a contrary opinion from the voice of reason, Mark. What's your take on that question? Well, it's going to be three for three. Amazing is by far the best single on this, for sure. Um, so you're saying that Ken is wrong? <laughs> yeah, for, for once, the voice of reason is incorrect on this. So, uh, you know, crying to me is just, it just doesn't hold water to this song at all. Um, but getting back to the whole MTV thing, um, unless you know the backstory of Aerosmith, which I'm sure Julian is very aware of, and I'm sure Lonnie knows a good deal about Aerosmith as well and stuff like that. I mean, these guys were flat broke. I mean, I think Steven Tyler even mentioned that he was living in the streets and on people's sofas at points where, you know, he was running around in the streets trying to find $20 to get cocaine, you know? And, and for them to be given a life preserver to get back and to start making music again, you know, that fear that Julian was talking about, about becoming irrelevant again. I mean, can you imagine going down in the dumps that down and that far to come back and then always have that in the back of your mind? You're saying, if I don't make another good record here, I could be back on the street again. It drives you to do things that maybe you wouldn't have wanted to do. Because I know that years later, Joe Perry used to always have these little 
comments that he would make about how he hated making some of these ballads and he thought that they were veering away from what Aerosmith was known to be a good blues rock band, American blues rock band, and that they were turning into a sappy ballad band and that's what they were getting known for. Well, I understand why maybe that was happening because maybe they had management talking in the ear and say, hey, don't forget, I pulled you out of the gutter and you need, you need to make some more hit songs or the gutter could be waiting again. And that's, that's fear, you know, I think that that's part of it, why they did it. You know, once they got more comfortable, I think they could have maybe then, you know, not as been, not be so tied to that fear and say, you know what? You know, unless we're real idiots and like, you know, pull a coal mining investment like Kiss did and lose all our money, then, you know, I think we're fine now with our money and we could probably make a few risks. Like, I think Honkin' on Bobo was probably a little bit of a risk. I mean, making a record of just, you know, blues covers probably wasn't the most popular idea to do, but they would have never have done that before they made all these hit singles, I don't think, because I think that they were trying to get themselves back into solid ground not only in the music world, but here they needed to get back on solid ground to not be scared to try to branch out a bit again. I mean, I, you've just raised some, you know, incredibly, you know, intelligent thoughts there. You know, Joe Perry was a road dog. Look at what he was able to tolerate and put up with during his solo era. I mean, that speaks volumes for him versus Steven Tyler in that same period. I mean, obviously, uh, Steve was recovering from injuries in the moped accident, but, I mean, he was so far off the reservation in terms of his drug abuse. Uh, two vastly different characters. Brad, as well, when you read through some of these guys' autobiographies about what it took, it was all about how much money he was going to be promised for a reunion. That was all that mattered. Joey Kramer, he was so far in Hawk, read hit hard, you know, get the whole horror of what happened to him and how far he'd gone. Joe Perry had lost his house to the IRS and was sleeping on Tim Collins' sofa. You know, so mm -hmm. you get why these decisions are made. None of them want to go back there. Some of them probably could deal with it better. I think Joe could easily have dealt with the band failing again. I don't think the others could have which explains to a certain extent why they would go this far in terms of pandering. And it's easy from the sidelines to call it pandering when we don't really know what was going on artistically, but look at the co-writing credits and who they were going to look mm -hmm. at the trends that they were chasing, look at the stuff that they did, but they also got lucky because they got lucky again. What was it? What year did um, Armageddon come out? You know, with, I don't mm, want to miss yeah. a thing. And yeah. it, you know, they made some of their own luck and did take a risk. Come on, I don't want to miss a thing. That was a risk. So it's 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 hard to just judge them by one album and some of the things that our personal tastes don't align with. They continue to work very hard on the road, incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. They tore their asses off, you know, and then honking on Bobo. I mean, come on, Cr uh, Rush did a, a similar sort of album. Um, yeah, the feedback feedback thank you um mm -hmm. but not as true and that for me that album had the last great Aerosmith song the grind you know mm -hmm. which is just absolutely stunning but do you think any of the b-sides or bonus tracks you know such as uh can't stop messing don't stop head first should have replaced tracks on this album um and also you can throw into that blind man which was a b-side deuces are wild which was a b-side um 
and I, and my notes here just say the deluxe edition of this would be staggering. And I sent you guys like an hour's worth of B sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I listened to them. All the different mixes of Living on the Edge and Crazy. Yeah. And I don't even have them all. I've got some CDs that I, I'm still waiting to, to get because I collect that stuff. I, I put together this collection donkeys years ago. <laughs> Toxic Residues, I called it. That's how much I was into Aerosmith at that point. Um, but Lonnie, you know, what about some of these other tracks? Should they have bumped material off the album? You know, I, I think that you know, walk on down could have easily been replaced by by don't stop, by stop messing or, or don't stop. I think very easily could have been. As far I like Deuces Are Wild, and I enjoyed it when it came out on that Beavis and Butthead thing, and then it was on big ones as well. But I don't think you needed Deuces Are Wild on the album. Yeah, if if I was gonna put Deuces Are Wild on the album, I would take Crazy off the album. I don't think you needed a fourth ballad in the same tone as those others um i like deuces are wild better than crazy and so you know i probably would put deuces are wild on there and take crazy off but i wouldn't put deuces are wild on there and leave crazy on it'd be is you know we, we already talked about were, were there too many ballads i don't think you could put a fourth ballad on there because then then you're really going to be labeled as you know a ballad type band and not and not a rock band. So, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I would take crazy off and put deuces are wild on there. I would have put stop messing and, and take walk on down off. And, and Julian, you, and you said it earlier in the show that it's, it's kind of a shame that we're sitting here talking about the B sides being better than songs on the album. And as much as I like this album, it's still true that I would take those two songs off and put those and put those B-sides on. Yeah, I, I think for me, equalizing the album, that they could have put a 60-minute album out in 1993 and followed it up with a 60-minute album in 1994. When you think about what was on big ones, Walk on mm-hmm. Water. You Walk know, on Water's a good song, too. Blind Man uh, was on that, and Deuces Are Wild was on that. And then you think of Don't Stop, Can't Stop Messing, which was on most uh, you know, international mm-hmm. versions. I mean, they're pretty far into an album there. And then you think of the other material that was recorded for Get a Grip that didn't even make it onto B-sides. You know, Legendary Child comes from that era. I don't know what form it took back then. But they basically could have done a one. They could have done a use your illusion type situation mm-hmm. a year apart. They had a lot of very good material. If they'd taken say crazy off, get a grip and put it as you know the main ballad for a 1994 album instead of doing big ones, which you know was fantastic when it came out, especially for those who hadn't had all the CD singles in compiling all the the Geffen years, you know. They had a lot of stuff going on. They had a lot of good stuff going on. And, you know, even Walk On Down. Yeah, take that off, get a grip, and put it on the 1994 album. You know, it's still good material from Aerosmith. Mark, uh, what's your take on the B-sides and bonus tracks? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those bands where, you know, the B-sides sometimes are a lot better than the studio tracks. I mean, I'm not going to say that they're a lot better, but they definitely have some songs that are stronger. I mean, one of the things I found interesting and why I think Pump is a better record is when I, I like watching the making of Pump. There's a great video of that on there. And you see on the wall, you know, Fairburn has an A-list and a B-list. 
of songs for that record. And for the longest time, Voodoo Medicine Man was on the B-side list, and they were fighting and fighting and fighting to have that put onto the A-side, right? And it's, it's interesting how much they fought for some of these songs. And I thought that that's something that they probably didn't do as strongly on this. First of all, there's a lot of songs on here, and a lot of songs made it. I mean, there's 14 songs on this record. I mean, that's a lot of songs for a record. I've, I've been a firm believer since day one, and you know that, Julian. I always talked about this when I was doing my own records, is that I, I'm a believer of the 40, 45-minute length album. Anything longer than that, you lose people's attention, I think. But, you know, other people like longer records. But I don't like them long. I like them that length, and that's it, you know. But on here, I think that they could have took some of those songs that were regarded as B-sides, because I think songs like the ones you mentioned, they're like Can't Stop Messing, great song. I think that could have replaced Walk On Down. You know, Don't Stop is a great song. I think they could have, that could have uh, got rid of line, line Up, I think. I think I could have, could have changed that, you know. I mean, there's, I just think that sometimes I'd love to know what it was or what they were thinking of uh, when they were picking these songs. Like, for example, too, I think Gotta Love It off the record is not that strong. That could have been replaced by one of the B-sides, I think, too. You know, I think that to me was the main difference that I got. But that this is only what I think about now. I never thought that back in 93 when this came out because I didn't know as much about these records as I do now. But back then, it's very obvious that Pump was more, I think, thoroughly, you know, looked over before they released it. Fantastic points as always, Mark. All right. So let's wrap up this episode with the final question. And it's uh, how do you rank Get a Grip within the Aerosmith Studio catalog? Um, and for myself, I don't. And that's a, that might sound like a complete cop-out, but, you know, Aerosmith's catalog for me ends in 1985. I seldom go past there. I've enjoyed revisiting this and all the B-sides, and I, I loved compiling that little transfer I gave to you guys of all the stuff that I've collected over the years from various international CD singles and, and whatnot. But everything that came after 1985 is from a different band. It's, it's Aerosmith is like one of the most schizophrenic acts out there because you have those two completely different histories. You have that heyday, and then you have the payday. So it's certainly better than Rock in a Hard Place, but I actually listen to Rock in a Hard Place more than I listen to Get a Grip. So that's kind of where I sit. Mark, what's your final take on where to rank it and final thoughts? Well, I mean, like I said, I think that... For me, uh, timing is everything, just like Lonnie said. Um, this came out at an impressionable time for me musically as well. So for me, it'll always probably rank a lot higher than other records will have. But now, looking back at it, I mean, I got much more into the older catalog as I've gotten older. So for me, my favorite record, and you're gonna, everyone will probably say, what are you nuts? Still, my number one, if you, anyone asks me what my favorite Aerosmith album is, Number one is always going to be Pump for me. Numero uno. But number two is like Toys. You know, then I got uh, the, the debut record is number three for me. I love that record. I that The record really grew on me since I started collecting vinyl. You know, because I went out and I got a really nice, 
you know, almost pristine copy of that of a Canadian pressing of that. And I just loved listening to it. It was a great record. And, you know, I got Get Your Wings and Rocks. And Get a Grip for me comes right after Draw the Line, which is six. So I had to play seventh and then Permanent Vacation after it, Night in the Ruts after it, and Done with Mirrors after it as well. And the funny thing is, I didn't rank any of the other ones because like you, I completely stopped listening to Aerosmith after Get a Grip. I, I never bought honking on Bobo or any of these other just press, press player. And I'm, I don't own any of those records. So I couldn't make a fair assessment of it. You know, honesty is the important part of this show. And when we're just, uh, when we're discussing these bands, these albums, you know, to know where you're coming from helps our listeners understand our points of view. So there, again, there never is a wrong answer. Lonnie, this was your topic. So you get the final word with get a grip and where it kind of ranks in your personal Aerosmith catalog. Yeah, and I picked this record because, like I said, begin the show. It it is my favorite Aerosmith record. It's it is the top one. And and again, like I said, begin the show. It's probably because it just stuck with me at an impressionable age. It really it really just hit home with me. It came out, and it's like I I love this. I love I love the sound of it. I love the songs on it. I it's just part of me, you know. And it, and, and it's followed by Pump for, for a lot of the same reasons, too. Um, and I will echo, and, and, and probably followed by that because I love their back catalog, too. It's probably followed by that by, by Get Your Wings. I, I do enjoy their their classic stuff as well. But I will echo with what Mark said, too. As much as I love this album, and then I did buy Big Ones when it came out in 94, 95, whenever it did, um, I bought that as well because... Even though I had Deuces Are Wild, I still wanted to hear the the two new songs with with Walk on Water and um, and Blind Man because I was really really into Aerosmith at the time. And after that, I bought Nine Lives. And I, and I anticipated I was I was ex, I was excited about Nine Lives coming out because of how much I like this album and because of how much I like the extra songs on big ones. I was excited about Nine Lives. And I could never do it. I could never get into it as much as I as much as I wanted to get into Nine Lives. Mm. I never could. And then when what's that one that came out in 01? What's it called? Uh, that it is push, just push play. Just push play. It has jaded on it. Just push eject. Even worse. And I was like, wow, what has happened? And I guess, I guess. Like Julian, you probably you're you're looking at this in the in like the same lens I'm looking at Nine Lives and just push play. Like what has happened to this band? And it just took a couple albums later for it to happen to me. So it's kind of a it's an interesting perspective with our different ages and different timelines to get that you know insight. So but for me it it is tops, and it died quickly afterwards as far as you know, what, what they were releasing. But for me, it's tops. Which is a shame because obviously that had happened to me. Um, I did go back years later. And again, I've got tons of B-sides and mixes. I've got like five different versions of Falling in Love is Hard on the Knees. Mm-hmm. Moby remixes of all that crap. And <laughs> because I'm a collector when it comes to Aerosmith and the big bands and that that form a part of my life's, you know, soundtrack, Aerosmith is one of them. And even though I checked out, you know, I, I, I heard, what was it, uh, you know, uh, 
what was it nine lives mm-hmm. some of those songs i was like okay it's it's okay i eventually went back and got the albums i'm like oh my god there's so much garbage on here it's uh, the only album that i ever went back that i really felt that i'd underappreciated or not given a fair play was just push play because there is stuff on there and they did it on the vegas uh, residency album that I thought really was much better than I recalled it being when I'd finally gotten the album. But, you know, even through to music from another dimension, uh, there was so much recycling and rehashing. And again, you ended up with like, again, I bought the Japanese version. There are like 20 songs on it. It's just like Tom Hamilton (laughs) singing, Joe singing. If you had condensed that down to what Mark, his point of view on an album, again, being that sweet 45 minute Mark, uh, roughly for an album if you condensed it down to that there were the songs on music from another dimension to make a kick-ass 45 minute album but instead you have an hour and 20 minutes of complete everything in the kitchen sink so it's a bit mm. of a bummer i love aerosmith i will always love aerosmith i'm writing a fucking book on aerosmith you know today mm. i've been writing a chapter i've been doing the narrative for the uh rock and hard place album focus section that introduces the tour it's all again the book's all about touring history 1973 through 1985 and there's a reason why it ends in 1985 i can't stomach writing about this band after that mm. So, you know, listening to Rock and a Hard Place and the demos, it makes me happy. I love this band. They, they are, really are probably America's greatest rock and roll band, and that's as a KISS fan as well. There's a reason why Aerosmith shifted a hell of a lot of albums after their reunion, because greatest hits barely shifted gold. They sure. are America's Rolling Stones. Oh, they, for sure. Oh, without a doubt. They, they totally are. But they did so much right in their career. But they, you know, they also made their own luck and they wrote it as long as they could, as the this sort of album demonstrates. So, you know, for all our listeners who've made it this far in the show, Andy Moyen, I did not call you to participate in this because I know you hate them. Um, pro- probably should have, which would have been good for a laugh and entertainment value. But, you know, what are your thoughts about all these kind of topics and how we've approached Get a Grip? today the show might have been three hours long too <laughs> no it would have been over quickly he would we would be talking wasp um which which will be an upcoming episode um but getting back to closing out this show is uh, you know what are your thoughts on get a grip and where does it sit in your personal kind of aerosmith catalog ranking are you old school like me I'm, I'm so glad i can say i'm old school on this band because i don't get to do that with kiss um or were you new school and coming in when all of this stuff was on mtv and they were a completely different band post 86 and the run dmc collaboration and they've continued to ride those collaborations the countryside the uh, kid mm-hmm. rock side you know i've got a promo video in, in my collection somewhere of kid rock and them doing walk this way and so, you know, they're a great band. What do you think about them? And just know this as I wrap up. Mark gets the next album pick, and he's not going to tell you mm. what it is right now, but Mark's up next to choose the album that we're going to listen to for our month and then discuss. So I'm looking forward mm. to seeing what Mark comes up with. Lonnie, great pick. Thank you very much. Ken, Thanks. thank yeah. you for chiming in with your comments. Wish you could have been here to put us in our place. Uh, we'll make sure that he's on the next episode of this or you know at least on a future episode of the kiss faq podcast but for now from mark 
from Absentee Ken, Lonnie, and myself. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>